Today's sermon is from Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We are in desperate need of a word from you. So we pray that your spirit would incline our hearts, open our hearts to receive it. And we pray that we would leave this place not merely being those who heard your word, but those who are going to do it. We can only do that by your grace. And it's in the name of Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, our first Sunday in 2020, and I don't know how many of you uh, started some New Year's resolutions, or maybe there were some things that, that you did in 2019, you're like, man, I really want to stop doing that, or some things you didn't do in 2019, you're like, I really want to start doing this, and maybe some of you just, you're maybe a little bit like me, and you're skeptical of resolutions, and you just hate that word, and you're like, oh no, oh, everybody else is doing New Year's resolutions, but not me, I'm not that guy, I'm not the guy that wants to... to change. You see, actually, Christians, more than anybody else in the world, should love a time of year where we can actually focus on changing, because we are, by nature of who we are, being changed and being transformed into the image of Christ. So 2020, just like every single year in the life of the church and in the life of every single Christian, should be a year of change. We should be changing. In 2020, I want the church at Trace Crossing to more clearly than ever know who we are. More clearly than ever, I want us to know who we are and what we are called to do in Tupelo and among the nations. Now, how can we realize this vision of knowing who we are and knowing what we are called to do in Tupelo? Well, we aren't left to ourselves to discover this. We don't have to all get in a room and, and just put ideas on a, on a whiteboard and just figure out, well, what are we, who are we actually and what are we supposed to do? And is that any different this year than it was last year? Because God has revealed himself in his word. Now, it is our job to apply the eternal truths of God's word to our faith family specifically. And that is, that is where we are going to have to do some work. But what I want us to know more than ever before this year is that we are disciples of Jesus who are being shaped into his image and who are sent to make more disciples of Jesus. I want us to be crystal clear on this, that our identity is we are a corporate body of disciples of Jesus who are being shaped into his image and who are sent to make more disciples of Jesus. So as we begin the year, I actually want us to ask a few questions just personally, individually, and then that will help us collectively. I want us to each ask of ourselves, what does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean? How am I growing as a disciple of Jesus? How am I helping shape others in our church into disciples of Jesus? And how am I living as one sent to make disciples in our city, state, and the nations? 
Well, in order for us to live as disciples who are shaped and sent by the gospel, we need to know the source of our identity and mission. We need to know the source. What's, what's at the root? What is, what is the source of our identity and our mission? And that source is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is central to our communion with God, our community with one another, and our commission to make the gospel known where it is not yet known. And that is the singular reason why we are beginning this year in Galatians. Because probably more than any other book in the Bible, Galatians is clear on the centrality, the privileges, and the power of the gospel. So let me throw this out there. What if in 2020, every single one of us was confident in our identity and mission as a corporate body. If every single person in this room was crystal clear and totally confident in who we are and what we are called to do, what would it mean for us individually? What would it mean for us as a church? What if each of us this year becomes immensely secure in the gospel? What if this year, more than ever, you remembered that who you are is not based on what you do or on what you fail to do, but based on the eternal gracious will of God to rescue you in Jesus? How would that change your friendships? How would that change your family, your work life, your social media activity even? How would you be transformed if you were secure in the gospel? Think about how different your life would be. Think about how different your life would be if you didn't just intellectually know, but you were emotionally aware that you were forgiven, that, that you are family, and that you have abundant freedom in Christ. Just, just imagine for a minute what God could do in us and through us if every single one of us felt, felt forgiven and felt free because of what God has already done for us in Jesus. There's a quote by a writer that I love. It says, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. In their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for their justification. Few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand on Martin Luther's platform, you are accepted. Looking outward in faith and claiming the external righteousness of Christ as their only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude. In order, he, he finishes the quote here, in order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation, not just at the outset of their Christian lives, but in every succeeding day. What if in 2020, every succeeding day, you were building your life, you were building your conversations, you were building every single thing you did on your acceptance by God through what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Paul teaches us in the book of Galatians that we are loved that we belong, that we are forgiven, and that we are free because of God's performance for us, not our performance 
for him. So for the first half of 2020, just so you know just where we're headed, the first half of 2020, we're going to dig deep into the book of Galatians. We're going to take a short break in the weeks leading up to Easter for a, for a short little Lent series, and then after that we're going to finish Galatians. So we will finish Galatians at, toward the middle of May. Um, so from now until the middle of May, we're going to go deep into the book of Galatians, and we're going to see how God uses the gospel of his son through the power of his spirit to shape and send us as disciples. Now, for the, for the letter itself, um, Paul's letter to the Galatians can neatly be divided into three sections, okay? So there are three sections that the entire letter can be divided into, just so you have, you know, some bearings. The first section includes the first two chapters. So chapters one and two, we could call the centrality and the integrity of the gospel. Paul is defending that, you know, and arguing that the gospel is central, and and he also defends uh, his authority as an apostle, and he talks about just the integrity of the gospel itself in the first two chapters. In, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul talks about the privileges of the gospel. So because Christ has come, here's what this means for us. We are included in a family, and it's not based on our ethnicity or anything else that we bring to the table. That's, that's his argument in, in chapters 3 and 4. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul outlines the power of the gospel. So since this is true, here's what it means for us. And this is what the gospel does in the life of the church. So now we we need to kind of consider the the name itself, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. And we have here in in verse 2 an indicator of who Paul's writing to, to the churches of Galatia. Galatia was a Roman province that bordered both the Black Sea to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. So it's a Roman province. And Luke actually records for us um, the origins of the churches in Galatia in Acts 13 and 14. So if you go to Acts 13 and 14, you're going to see Luke recording Paul's uh, uh, first missionary journey. And he's, as he travels into cities in Galatia, and he's starting to proclaim the gospel, and he's starting to plant churches. Now, Paul's gospel message was a message that centered on the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah. Paul's gospel of the Messiah, though, was not limited to Jews. So the Jews were looking forward for centuries for the Messiah to come, and Paul indeed is preaching this gospel that the Messiah has come, and his name is Jesus. But he says that this Messiah has come, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he has come to save not just the Jews, but people from all nations. Paul preached a salvation that comes by grace through faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So as Paul travels to Galatia, he's preaching this gospel to the people there, and they come to faith. The Gentiles from Galatia did not have to become Jews in order to enter the family of God, and this was at the heart of Paul's gospel. All they had to do was become followers of Jesus. And so Paul goes into Galatia, and he preaches the gospel, and people come to faith, and churches are planted, And then Paul leaves, and he continues on proclaiming the gospel elsewhere, and then he hears something that's happened in Galatia. There were some outsiders, a group of of Jewish Christians that, that arrived in Galatia, found the churches that Paul had planted, and their desire was to correct, or probably in their words, complete Paul's gospel. In their minds, Paul preached an unfinished gospel. He's preaching about the grace of God, but he's ignoring the, the law of God. And so these, these outsiders, they come in, these opponents of Paul, they come in and they discredit his authority as an apostle. They question the validity of his gospel, and they insist that the Galatian believers still had to do more if they wanted to truly be a part of God's people. 
Um, history has called these men Judaizers, and so they, they were teaching that in order for Gentile Christians to be included in the people of God, they had to be circumcised. Yes, they need to believe in Jesus, but they also need to follow the law, and they also need to be circumcised if they actually want to be a part of God's people. So that's what Paul's dealing with here. We have these opponents that have come in, and they're preaching that Paul's gospel is actually incomplete. And so Paul seeks to answer the question, what does the gospel actually accomplish for us And what does it actually empower in us? Now, I believe we especially need to walk through Galatians this year for two reasons. So in light of just some of that background, the first reason is we are prone to forget the gospel, just like the Galatians. You see, because it wasn't just that these these opponents came in and started, uh, uh, you know, trying to discredit Paul the Galatian believers were believing these opponents, okay? So, so Paul, it says there, you know, in verse 6, I'm astonished, okay? So, so Paul comes in, and he is shocked by the change that he's heard about in the churches that he planted. Just a few, a few quotes from him here. In, in, yeah, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, in chapter 3, in verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then in chapter 4, he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And then in chapter 5, he goes all the way. He goes all the way. He says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We are more like these Galatian believers than we would like to admit. We forget how gracious God is to us in the gospel. We forget how deeply we belong to God and to one another, and we forget our freedom. We are slow to put sin to death because we are prone to forget how free we actually are in Jesus. We have freedom over sin. We are quick to judge others, and we are slow to forgive others because we forget how gracious God has been to justify us in Jesus. And we can be resistant to certain kinds of people becoming a part of the family of God. We limit God's grace all the time. So we need Galatians. This is a word for us. But the second thing is we are prone to add to the gospel like the Judaizers. So we're prone to forget the gospel like the Galatians, but we're also prone to add to the gospel like the Judaizers. We're prone to add cultural or sociological requirements to the gospel. Unless someone looks a certain way or acts a certain way, Uh, we may treat them as less than a brother or sister in Christ. We want their behaviors to fit our behaviors. We're prone to add theological requirements to the gospel. We may doubt someone's salvation if they don't agree with us on important but not primary doctrines. We're prone to add political requirements to the gospel. Some of us may question how any Christian could possibly support a Democrat in this upcoming presidential election. And then others of us may question how any Christian could support the re-election of our current president. Now, this is, this is really important for us, because in our current political climate, we have to be on guard against adding to the gospel. We will be tempted more than ever to add requirements to the gospel of Jesus during this political season that's coming this year. Political divisions have exposed divisions within the church as well. We're not just divided as a country, the church is divided as well. But we must never allow any politician or political party to drive a wedge between those that Christ has united, ever. So, as we walk through Galatians, here's how we'll be tempted. 
you're going to read this, and listen, if you've never read it before, Paul's hot, okay? He is mad, and he, he is defending himself, and he is defending the gospel with full vigor. And I'm, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, as you read it, you will be tempted to line yourself up with Paul, and you will just identify with him. You're like, yeah, 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 they're wrong, and they're wrong. How could they possibly do that? And what you need to realize is Paul's writing to you. Paul, Paul's writing to me. We are so prone to add to the free grace of God in the gospel. And so we are always in need of this reminder that the work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection is enough, is sufficient for our salvation and our adoption into God's family. In order for us to love one another well and grow in godliness together, we need to be careful to know the gospel well and not add a single idea or action to it. Well, we begin Galatians with Paul's greeting. Greetings are easy to, to gloss over, but not, not Paul's greeting in Galatians. We cannot skip over it. Um, his, in his greeting, Paul is communicating three ideas. Three ideas, and that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time today walking through. The first idea is that the gospel is from God. The second idea is the gospel is God's work. And the third idea is the gospel is for God's glory. All right, let's take those one at a time. So first, the gospel is from God. In verses 1 and 2, this is what we read. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So right here at the beginning, Paul does something that's not typical to most of his greetings. He sounds a little defensive, Right? You catch that? You catch his tone here. He doesn't just say Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because you know the, these are the churches that he planted. The the Christians that he's writing to, they know that Paul's an apostle. They've already had interactions with him. He, I mean, they're they're familiar with Paul, and they know they know a lot of his co-laborers in the gospel. Um, and yet he has this little phrase here: not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. Not because other people just sent me out and thought I would just be really good at taking this message to you, but because Jesus Christ himself and God the Father, they have sent me out on this mission. My authority is not from myself or from other people. It is from God. So Paul is saying here right at the beginning, I am who I am because of what God has done for me. He had, he had been called to be an apostle by and for the risen Jesus alone. Okay, So Paul wanted to communicate that his authority as, a, as an apostle and his gospel message did not originate with him or with any other person, that God is the source of Paul's authority and message. We, we can draw a couple conclusions here. So what we see is that even though Jesus is in glory at the right hand of the Father, he is still present and actively working in and through his people. So, so at this point, Jesus has, has lived, he's lived, he has died, he, he was raised from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven. And yet Paul is a great example here of someone who was not an eyewitness and yet had this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus is still actively involved and still present with his people, even though he is at the right hand of the Father right now. So although that Jesus is not physically present, he is still with us, and he continues to work in us, and he continues to work through us. But the second thing we see is that even though Paul 
as he's writing these letters, as he's formulating his gospel, Paul relied heavily, and if you've read any of Paul's letters, you'll see this, he relied heavily on eyewitness testimony from those who were there, not just, not just himself and his own revelation from God. He relied heavily on eyewitness testimony. He relied, uh, uh, Paul relied heavily on the other apostles, and especially those disciples who were with Jesus. He, he relied on them. And Paul relied heavily on the Old Testament, as he's writing his letters and he's making his theological arguments, he relied heavily on the oral tradition about Jesus. And yet, Paul knows that the ultimate source of his mission and message is directly the result of divine intervention. Paul is clear about where his authority and gospel come from and where they don't come from. He leaves no room for middle ground. There's no middle ground here. And the language is clear in Paul. He says, that my gospel, my authority as an apostle is not from men, but it is from God. He's setting the stage for the rest of his letter by saying that the gospel is clear enough for those of us who have courage to say, this is what the gospel is, this is what the gospel is not. I am who I am because of what God has done, and I'm not this. There, there's clarity here. So what we can take away from this is that the gospel we celebrate and share is not a fabrication of our imagination, nor is it a fairy tale. This, this isn't something that we have just come up with. And it isn't even just something that we heard our parents say or our grandparents. We have received a message. We have received the gospel, which is about a historical and spiritual reality. And we've received it from the apostles, and we've received it from the church. And we have received it from our parents or our friends or whoever shared the gospel with us. But ultimately, ultimately, we receive our status as believers, and we receive the gospel itself because God himself has revealed it to us. God has made it known. He is the source. The gospel is from God, no one else. Okay, second thing we see in Paul's greeting, the gospel is God's work. The gospel is God's work. We see this in, in verse 2 all the way to verse 4. So he says, he addresses who he's writing to, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. All right, so in this greeting... Paul is essentially, not perfectly, but he is setting up the rest of his letter. You could, you could take the three sections of the letter and find their origins in this greeting, especially the way that he outlines it. So Paul has said, I'm an apostle, and the Galatians are churches because of something God has done, not something they have done. And, and now he's answering the question, what does the gospel message communicate about what God has done? What has God done? What has he done through Jesus Christ? And here's his answer. Paul's answer is, Jesus died and rose again to create a new community that would be reconciled to God and one another, forgiven of sin, delivered from this evil world because God wanted to do it. That's his answer. It, it breaks down into five phrases, and I want us to consider each of these, these five phrases that Paul breaks down to show that the gospel is the work of God. All right, five phrases. The first phrase, Jesus died and rose again to create a new community. Look who he's writing to. He's writing to the churches of Galatia. Um, the Galatians were not 
Jews. He's writing to Gentiles, okay? He's writing to people who were foreign to the people of God. He's writing to outsiders, he's writing to foreigners, because it was to those people that he was sent to proclaim this salvation that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And they believed. And by their faith in Jesus alone, they had become a part of God's people. So what we see right here at the beginning is that Jesus died and rose again to create a new community that is not based at all on ethnicity. Ethnicity is not a requirement for entrance into the people of God. Jesus is. All right, so he died and rose to create a new community. The second phrase, Jesus died to reconcile us to God and others. And in my study this week, this was the most striking to me. It's, it's very typical of Paul. So some of you may even disagree. I may be reading too much into this. It's so typical, this, this greeting in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You find that in almost all of Paul's letters. It's, it's typical to Paul. Uh, any letter that doesn't have that or doesn't have it exactly like that, they even question whether Paul even wrote it or not. So it's very typical for him to say that. It's, it's a greeting, but it's more than a greeting. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Grace be with you. Peace be with you from Jesus, from God. But it carries more weight in his letter to the Galatians because of the circumstances that he's writing to. The Galatian churches have been influenced by those who would add to the gospel, and they themselves have forgotten the gospel. That's the reason he's even pen, like writing this letter is because they've forgotten the gospel, and they are prone, just like these Judaizers, now they're adding to it. And they were in danger of abandoning the faith and Paul is going to lay the hammer down on these people throughout this letter. And his, his language is so strong throughout the letter of Galatians. And, and yet, Paul greets them with grace and peace. Now, maybe, maybe Paul is writing that letter, and he's like, okay, and he's mad, right? He's just, all right, he's Paul, an apostle, not from men, not from men, like these people are saying, not from men, and he's just writing, and he's like, to the churches in Galatia, uh, what else do I typically say? Oh, grace and peace, yeah, right, grace and peace, yeah, Um, and he just writes it because that's what he writes. No, no. Paul is reminding them of something. No matter how far they have strayed from the gospel, there is grace available to them in Jesus. No matter how far they've strayed, no matter how far, how much they've gotten wrong, no matter how much error they're currently in, he extends grace to them. There is grace to you. There is peace available. He's reminding them that because of what Jesus has done, they have peace with God. And nothing else needs to be done. Now, they need to be corrected, and he's going to correct them. And he's going to oppose these false teachers who have come in. But make no mistake about it. Paul is telling them, you have peace with God, not on the basis of how right your theology is. You have peace with God because Jesus Christ came and died for your sins, and he has reconciled you from God. It's outside of you. It's what God has done for you. There's still peace available. There's still grace available. Do you remember what it was like as a kid when you would mess up or just deliberately disobey and then try to hide it from your parents? 
No, Matt doesn't know anything about that. I see him shaking his head. No, never. Um, I, <laughs> you know, after you did that, you would try to cover it up, you, you know, so you wouldn't have to face your parents. Maybe if I can hide this, they'll never know. And, and you probably do that because you're afraid of what they may say or what they may do. And so fear is driving that. But the more that you would try to cover it up, the harder it would, it would be to just come clean with it. You know, you just get so deep into trying to hide what you did. You can't just come clean after a certain point. You know, it's like you're too, you're too far in it. Uh, I remember when I was like 11 or 12, I had like all my buddies over at the house and we were hanging out in the basement and we had this like, like really big like Nerf type basketball goal, you know, and we were playing on it, we were dunking on it and, you know, just playing, doing what, doing what 12 year olds do, just playing crazy. Um, and one of my friends, uh, <laughs> he went up to dunk it and he hung on the rim and his feet swung out and went straight through the drywall, like went straight through the wall, you know, just busted a hole in it. And we're all just like, oh no, you know, and we're freaking out. And, you know, what we, my dad heard the sound, he's like, hey, y'all all right? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're fine. And so we're just sitting there like, all right, what are we going to do? And we're looking all over the basement for any furniture, anything that can be put right there in place. And so that's what we do. We find something. We, we kind of position it in place. There's a couch that was a little high. And we just move that couch over just enough and just rearrange it a little bit. And there it is. And it's covered. And we're like, oh, can anybody see that? No, okay. Whew, we're good. Um, and we thought we were fine. And then, but, but here's what I didn't kind of realize at the, at the outset. My plan was never to tell my parents ever because, you know, Why? Why do that and get myself in trouble? Maybe by the time I go to college, then they find it and I'm already gone. Um, so, but every single day after that point, it was like a full-time job to try to keep my parents away from that part of the house, you know? Like my dad would start going downstairs and I'm just like, do, 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 I'd run in front of him and just get down there and try to distract him with something else. I mean, it was exhausting. It was exhausting trying to keep that hidden because I was so fearful of how he would respond to, to that mess up, to that, you know, that failure. Um, we have this sinful tendency to just go deeper and deeper and deeper in our sin. And maybe part of the reason is because we are too ashamed to just come clean to God and to one another. Maybe we're afraid of how God will respond or how others will respond. But Paul extends grace and peace to these Christians who are in deep error. No matter how deep you find yourself in sin, no matter how tangled you feel in sin's web, no matter how hard you are trying to hide, when you turn back to God, you will be met with nothing but grace and peace. That's what he extends to you, even in your sin and your error. All right, third phrase. Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. He couldn't be clear in verse 4. He says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he describes what Jesus has come to do. Who gave himself for our sins. Jesus gave himself for our sins. At the cross, Jesus offered himself in our place. He atoned for our sin. And here's Paul's point right here at the beginning, for these Galatians who are believing that they need to do something more, something more. For these Judaizers who are teaching, you don't belong unless you do something more than simply believe in Jesus. He's letting them know right here, the blood of Jesus did not pay 
for 99% of your sin. And then we have to close the gap with, with something of our own. Jesus said, as he's dying on the cross, it is finished. No more. No more needs to be done for you to be included in the people of God. I know it's hard to believe, but no more needs to be done for you to be fully forgiven of your sin. I know, but man, you don't realize how, how much I sin. I know. You don't realize how gracious God has been to you in sending his son to die on the cross. That's why we sing the song that will, that will continue on with us. Jesus paid it all. All. Not some, not part. In full. Jesus paid the debt that we owe. And so, the result of that is, by faith in him, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Not based on anything else you could bring. There's nothing you could bring. There's nothing you can bring. It would not work. And there's nothing that needs to be brought to the table. Jesus has paid it in full. Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. All right? The next phrase that we find in this greeting. Jesus died and rose again to set us free from this present evil age, to set us free from this present evil age. Look what he says. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, for what purpose? To deliver us from this present evil age. To deliver us from the present evil age. When Paul says that Jesus gave himself at the cross to deliver us from this evil age, he's saying that Jesus by his life, death, and resurrection, and then our faith in him has relocated us inside the plan of salvation that God is accomplishing. And I don't know if you think about this often, but do you actually know what happened when you were converted? What actually happened whenever you first came to faith in Jesus? We don't experience it this way. Whenever you hear the gospel, and we all have different experiences, but at some point, you hear the gospel, and you're convinced Right? You're mentally just convinced of who Jesus is and what he has done. And then you place your trust in him and you believe in him. And that's really our experience of it. But Paul actually tells us what happens at the, in that moment in Colossians 1. He says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. He transfers us into a new kingdom, into a new realm in and with a new community. And what this means is that we are part of the only community, the only community that will outlast this evil world because of what Jesus has done. And this is a community that's made up of all races, all classes, all kinds of sinners from all kinds of backgrounds. All of us at home because Jesus is enough for every single one of us. What Paul's going to argue throughout the rest of the letter is that we walk in this Christ-purchased freedom by letting go of our attempts to be righteous on our own and by resting in him alone. He delivers us from this present evil age, which means we don't have to pretend anymore. We don't have to pretend that we have it all together. We actually prove 
that we have been delivered and that we are free by being honest with our sin, not by hiding from it. Think about it. More than anybody else in the world, if you're in Christ in this room, you are freer than everyone else to admit how bad you are. You are freer than everyone else to be honest with your failures and with your sins, which is why the church should be a prime place for reconciliation and for forgiveness and for redemption. What marks us as belonging to a new kingdom is what one of my favorite pastors calls a relaxed openness. Paul is setting up his arguments throughout the letter in this greeting, and here's what he says. The gospel frees you to come to Jesus in your sin and to receive what only he can provide. Only Christians have this audacious freedom to own up to their sin because we know that we belong to a Savior who is the king of a kingdom that will never end, and we belong to a Savior who loves sinners and came to save us from what kills us. He died and he rose again to set us free from this present evil age. The last phrase that we find here in the greeting. Jesus died and rose again because that's what God wanted. Another way to say it, the way that Paul says it is, right here at the end, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. According to the will of our God and Father. Here's what this means. The cross, God's grace, your salvation, it wasn't your idea. It wasn't my idea. It, it wasn't your strategy. Jesus didn't die to make God love us. Maybe you've gotten the gospel backwards in that way. You think that God the Father is angry with you, and so God the Son says, oh, please, 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 let me do something, let me do something, and then he goes and he dies to make God love us. Mm -mm. And maybe you've been mistaken, and you think that because you are a believer, or because you're a Christian, or because you go to church, that God loves you. That God is somehow responding to your work God is somehow responding to, to your faith. Like, now, now I love him. Now I love her. No. Jesus died because God loves us. We came to faith in Jesus because God loves us. What's the most familiar passage in the world say? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. We are family. We are forgiven. We are free through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because that's what God wanted. That's what he wanted. So you may feel today rejected and unwanted, not just by the world, but by your own family, people who are closest to you, people who are supposed to be with you through thick and thin, and you may feel rejected by them. You may feel lonely in this faith family right now. But the radical good news of the gospel is that the creator of the universe wants you. Wants you. I'm a sinner who has sinned against him. He wants you. And he sent his son for you. And if you have trusted in Jesus, he has you. And he will never let you go.
The gospel is God's work. And we just respond to it by faith. All right, one more thing that Paul communicates here that I want to share. The gospel, it's from God. The gospel is God's work. And finally, the gospel is for God's glory. Verse 5. The end of verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The preceding four verses, the first four verses of, of the letter, they establish the source of the gospel and the content of the gospel. But here at the end, Paul is exalting the goal of the gospel, which is God's glory. Here's what Paul's doing here in the greeting and he does throughout the letter. He is drawing the Galatians, and, and since we're here receiving this, he's drawing us outside of ourselves. He's, he's drawing us outside of ourselves. Self-righteousness, which he's attacking, and works righteousness, which he will be attacking, are self-obsessed and empty philosophies. Anytime we exalt ourselves, and we're prone to do it, anytime we do that, we are searching for significance and satisfaction, and we're always left empty, and we're always left wanting more. Anytime we try to glory in ourselves, whenever we demand our way, whenever we grumble until we get our way, we are not walking in what Christ has purchased for us. We're walking in the ways of this present evil age. Paul's gospel, he starts from the beginning here. He says, it's not about you. It is ultimately about God and his glory, which means, by extension, that the church is not about us always getting our way, but it's about us always glorifying our God. So the gospel is for God's glory, and so is the church. So here, here's an easy formula for the church. If we put ourselves first, and this is something we all need to take time and just, just examine yourself. Are you putting yourself first in, in this faith family? Because when we put ourselves first, we will implode. If we put ourselves first, we will implode. But the formula is just as simple on the other side. If we keep believing this glorious gospel of grace and we keep putting Jesus first, we will thrive. We will thrive. So here's what we can confess together this morning. God is the only one with grace enough for us. He is the only one with enough grace for us. God alone has called us to himself as his people. God alone can use sinners like us to accomplish his purposes in Tupelo. You may be frightened at the, at the thought of being a disciple who makes disciples. That may scare you to death that the expectation here in this church will be for you, as a disciple of Jesus, to shape others into the image of Jesus. And it may scare you to death at the concept of being sent. Sent, where am I going? Where am I going? being sent into the city and into the world with the gospel to make more and more disciples. But what we can confess this morning is that God will use you and God will use me, every single one of us, even though we are sinners, to accomplish his purposes in this city. So what does that mean? If God's the one who's doing it all, to God alone belongs the glory. In response to the grace and peace of God that's extended to us in Jesus, Paul says that we are to glorify him by walking as a family in the forgiveness and freedom that is ours in Christ, rejoicing in him all the way.
All right, in this greeting, we can't find a single thing that God wants us to do. You notice that? You're looking. Application, application, what do I do, what do I do? There's not a single thing that he wants you to do. Nothing that's expected of you. Every phrase is about something that God has done for us. So it's my prayer. In my, in my prayer journal, this was my prayer that we would, as a church, begin 2020 the way that Paul begins his letter to the Galatians, with a reminder that we are who we are and we do what we do because of what God has done for us.